The flesh is about wickedness. It's already been determined wicked. It's condemned in men as wicked by the standard of Christ. In the Spirit, now we're talking about the Holy Spirit, and that's holy, as God is holy. Welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. In Romans 8, 1 through 8, the Apostle Paul explains God's plan for men to live by the victorious life that only the Spirit of Christ can supply. In this passage, God, through his Son, condemns sin in human flesh. Joe Durso takes a microscope to this passage to rightly divide God's word and thereby give Christian hearers the weapons needed to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you are outside of Christ, you will want to carefully consider Paul's teaching and flee to the God who loves all men but will punish those who reject his beloved son. As always, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for grace. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the responsibility of caring for the the sick and the dying, for the lost. We ask, dear Heavenly Father, the responsibility, the task of setting forth the doctrines of, of grace of theology as found in Romans chapter 8. They're beyond human comprehension. They're, it's just, it's a task too great for any man apart from the Holy Spirit of God. I ask your Heavenly Father that you would lead me as I consider these truths, these doctrines, these teachings of Christ and the church. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that you would open the hearts and the ears of the hearers. We ask, dear Lord, that we would look at these things not through the eyes of men, not through human effort, not through intellectual pursuit, but from the heart, a heart created by God, a mind opened by God, I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that you would give us the truth as we need it, whether it be the lost who are listening, or those who are young in the faith, or those who have been very old in the faith, to consider these things as we need them for our soul, as we need truth to contradict all the lies that have been told. Lord, that we might be strong in the faith, we'll come into the faith, And that we might one day hear those great words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would do these things in this hour, in this moment, for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The scripture that is set before us today is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 8. I'm going to read from verse 1, continuing on from 
last episode. But before I do, I want to consider just a very important thought. And I believe it's true that today's average Christian, and I'm not meaning to just throw a blanket over the whole entire church or to criticize or to cast a judgment, but just the culture in which we live kind of in some ways dictates, unless people are willing to think outside the box, can affect how we think, how we see things if we're living inside the box. I think everyone would agree with that. And therefore, for those people who are not thinking outside the box of our present-day culture, we can be affected by a two-dimensional screen. We can begin to think in two-dimensional ways. Or 280 characters on Twitter can make us unwilling to meditate for more than five minutes, bites as a result. Seminaries are intended for men who will make a living out of religious thought. That's one way of looking at it. Biblically, doctrine and theology are meant for the church, as most letters are directed to church members, as is the book of Romans. I mean, except for those letters sent to Timothy and the the letter to, to Titus, which are considered book for leaders in the church. Now you have to define, and it would be best to do that biblically, what Jesus is talking about through the Holy Spirit as what leadership looks like in a church. Again, we can be thinking inside a box created not by God, but by the culture which is influenced by the God of this world who has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. The letter to the Romans is written, can be as basic as a New Testament Christian, a new Christian needs, or needs it to be, or as deep and helpful as a person engaged in spiritual warfare. If one believes the Bible to be true and that there are angelic and demonic beings, which I do. So with these thoughts in mind, let's, let's try to think Outside the box, if you've never read Romans before, you'd be reading it for the first time. If you're an old-time Christian, as myself, an old man, and read, I don't know how many, dozens and dozens of times and studied this book, you know, let's, let's try to look at it through new eyes, no matter who we are. So beginning in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, We read, therefore, there is now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, 
but those who are in accord with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now that's a hard reading. May God bless that reading to our ears and our hearts. But again, it, it can be s- simplified, but it's, it's not a simple text. I think we can all understand that. Let us consider first Jesus freed us from condemnation. The statement is made in verse 1. The penalty of the law. Verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Simple statement, straightforward. There's no condemnation for a person who is in or identified with Christ Jesus. We have to identify all these terms. Condemnation, what it means to be identified in Christ. Condemnation in Greek is katakrima, and by definition is a penalty. So we could read this this way. There is no penalty for those who are in Christ. By being identified in Christ, we are lost or hidden in him. Christ no longer sees us in our sinful condition but rather he sees us through the work that Christ performed when he was hung on a cross, put to death by God. He gave up his life. No one took it from him. It was an offering, a free will offering of God, by God, for man. And to satisfy his own sense of justice, perfect as it is, as Almighty God. So now that leaves the question, okay, so in this word condemnation, it's a penalty. It's not the sin itself. It's the penalty for sin by which uh, Paul opens this new section that we call Romans chapter 8. So we might ask the question, how Jesus condemned sin? How Jesus condemned sin? He condemned sin, not the penalty of sin. Let me back up for a minute there. There is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, try to follow along. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, so let me review so you don't get lost if I haven't lost you already. The opening statement is, there, therefore there is no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. That is, there's no penalty for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now this is talking about justification that God accomplished by justifying us through the sin, through Jesus bearing the sin of men. But then he goes on in verse 3 
and says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, in that word is actually different slightly from the word condemnation in verse 1. In verse 3, katakrino in Greek, and by definition is to give judgment against or to judge someone decisively, decidedly as guilty. Now, this isn't talking about penalty. This is talking about judgment that a person is found guilty of the sin itself. The sin is being judged here. Sin that dwells in the heart of men. And in, in, in this verse, think about it again. If you can read it, read it. If you're driving, please don't do that. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin, the sin itself, not the penalty, the sin itself in the flesh. By ones, and now this also this word, katakrino, can also be rendered by one's good example to render another wickedness the more evident and censorable. By one good example, Jesus Christ, he rendered the human race and the sin of the human race and each individual and all wicked. And it became more evident and more apparent because of Jesus example, because in him there was no sin. He became sin for us, but he did not commit any sin. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. So we need to think about this for a moment, that Jesus, by coming, condemned sin in the flesh by living a holy and perfect life. Now, when we talk about this, men, people, are usually we judge ourselves by others. We look at other people and we think we're better than they are and they're worse than we are and that, that makes us something good in our eyes. But we're not being judged against other people, we're being judged against Almighty God. And Jesus lived a life where every thought, every word, every motive, the intentions of his heart, his attitude, the entirety of what people are in their soul, in, that, in their conscience, and what God has made us to be in being moral people, he has actually, he, he has all of that in Jesus Christ. When he took on humanity, when he took on a body, when he, when he lived as we live, was completely pure, completely holy, completely without sin. Now when we are measured against him, that's a whole different story. We let everything slide. I mean, comparatively speaking, to what God lets slide, which is absolutely nothing, we are incredibly willing to overlook everything that we do. Not so much in other people, but we can't even see other people the way God does. So therefore, let us consider that he condemned sin in the flesh and in this way that we're describing today. Katakrino. 
By his good example, he rendered the race wicked and completely evident of it. Verse 5 then goes on and says, For those who are in accord with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are in accord with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now Paul is starting to move into after this justification has taken place for penalty and after this condemnation was taken place of sin. Now we start, we start to look at the fact that Christians are, who are a new creation, God is doing away with the old and he's, he's bringing something new to place. He's, he's put us under the New Testament covenant by which the law is written in our minds and in our hearts and thereby fulfilling his promise uh, from the Old Testament, which we see in Hebrews chapters 8 and 10 about this fulfillment of the covenant by which he's united with us in a covenant relationship which he accomplished through Christ on the cross. So then let us ask this question, how the Spirit of Christ completes the work of sanctification? And we're going to do that by looking at this, these terms in accord with the flesh or the Spirit. They're contrary to one another. We either live in accord with the flesh or we live in accord with the Spirit. In accord in a Greek is down or against or according to. There are many ways this preposition can be used. One way is in reference to agreement or conformity to a standard in various ways. So it's in, in reference to agreement or conformity to. So when he says in accord to, it's an agreement with. It's an agreement with the flesh or it's an agreement with the spirit. Another is in proportion to or according to the measure of, in the case of either the flesh or the spirit. In proportion to the flesh or in proportion to the spirit. We, we already know what the flesh is about. And we're going to learn more as we go through this passage. The flesh is about wickedness. It's already been determined wicked. It's condemned in men as wicked by the standard of Christ. In the Spirit, now we're talking about the Holy Spirit, and that's holy, as God is holy. Verse 6 goes on and says this, For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset. Now, the mindset, we, we can look at it in English as one word, mindset, or two words, mindset, as two words. In Greek, we have a mind capable of thought, and we have the thought of the mind. So you look in the Greek term, and both of those are, are present there. And so what's being said is, is simply this. This is why I rendered this verse, the mindset, one word, of the flesh is death. The mindset, the thought of the mind of the flesh is death. Also, the thought in the mind, the mindset of the spirit, is life and peace. You get the idea behind this? We're talking about the mindset. The word isn't mindset in the Greek. 
But that's how it's defined. That's how it's, we're defining the word by God's definition of the Greek word. So the mindset of the flesh is death. Okay, so let's look at how, what these two, how this works out. There are two completely different mindsets. They're contrary the one to the other. One is a mindset of death, and we see that in the world all around us. We see criminal behavior by which one man kills another for completely selfish purposes. Then there's even non-criminal behavior by which the government in our country, in many countries around the world, which is supposed to uphold as an institution created by God, the commandments of God, we're talking about human governments, and they sanction the murdering of our young through abortion. These are just a couple of mindsets of death. There's mindsets of adultery. People understand just how evil that is when you have a spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend and you, you think that they're being true to you and they go out and they sleep with someone else. And there's, we call them crimes of passion. And people go irate because they, they understand in that moment right from wrong. And when a sister or a brother or an uncle or a father is killed or raped by someone else, now we have a heightened sense of justice and we want to kill someone back. We can make laws, we can make all kinds of decrees and people get all upset and you're being critical and judgmental, you know, until something bad happens to you. And then once something bad happens to you or me, you know, now, now all of a sudden our sense of justice gets just goes right through the roof. And now we want condemnation. Because God made us to understand right from wrong. He gave us all the conscience. Jesus Christ is a mindset of life and peace. The flesh, not at all. Jesus Christ had and is, even now, a mindset of life and peace. He sacrificed himself as ransom so that others might live and live in peace with God. That's the whole part here. There's a mindset of death, and it brings death, as we'll go on to look at, in a number of ways. And then there's a mindset of life and peace. When the apostle was writing about the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he saw him as the life. The eternal life. God is eternal. Everything didn't just come out of nothing by happenstance. Everything came from an eternal being that already exists. It's the only reasonable way to look at the, the creation of the universe. Where did everything come from? Children ask it, and it's mind-boggling, and we turn it into a ridiculous concept of somehow it just happened. Like, like it, everything came from nothing with no one being there. It's absurd. It's unreasonable. Aristotle understood it long, 400 years before Christ. It's just a reality, and it's reasonable. And so Jesus changes mindsets. That's a, a mindset against creation, which is a mindset against God. But Jesus Christ is a mindset of life eternal life, and peace, to make peace with God, which we read about in Romans chapter 5. Now, verses 1 to 8 state the principle of justification of the sinner through substitutionary work of Christ and begins to explain the Spirit's work of Christian sanctification. Sanctification is that doctrine that sets apart 
where sanctification in itself sets apart the sanctified one for God's purpose and by his power. Sanctification sets apart the sanctified person for God's purpose and by his holy power. Therefore, Paul completes this principle of sanctification, which grow out of our justification by saying, verse 6, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, contrasting the flesh from the spirit. Why? How? In verse 7, he says, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. The mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, but is not at, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, let's break this down a little slower. The mindset of the flesh is death. Death defined. Death is defined right here, right in these verses. Because the mindset on the flesh, number one, is hostile toward God. It is hostile. You know what hostile is. They're against you. They'll kill you. They'll hurt you. They'll break you down. That's what the mind said on the flesh is. It's hostile toward God. If it could kill God, it would. And man was willing to nail Jesus to a cross. I mean, we just see it lived out in human history. A, it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's unwilling to do what God says. God says, thou shalt not make idols. Thou shalt have no other God before you, before me, sorry. Thou shalt make no image of God. And what man do? He cuts down trees, he, he, he carves stones, he just melts the iron and forms it, and, and he says, this is God. He turns everything as more important to God. It's all idolatry. And we're going to go down all the Ten Commandments, and men, we, we break them all our lives. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I mean, really. Thou shalt not murder. We make war. I mean, I have to prove this. This is, an, this is a fact in history. What? That the mind set on the flesh, the human flesh, the human condition, the human soul does not subject itself to the law of God. B, it is not even able to do so. I mean, even if a person wanted to, which we don't want to, and, and, and different cultures and different levels of morality and standards that are set out by the culture and people want to live up to it in order to you know, get along with other people and be, be accepted. And we all see that. You know, we, we've all went through it in high school. Those are beyond that age, and we understand, you know, how other people make us feel, and we, we want to be loved and respected and honored and go, and, and all of that doesn't mean a thing uh, with regards to what we're talking about. You can be moral in your own mind, but when it comes to God, that's a whole different subject. Do not want to be told what to do by the person who gave us life designed, has a plan for us. 
And whatever that plan might be, we don't want to hear about it because we don't care for God. We're hostile to God, and we're not willing. But if we were willing, it doesn't matter because we're not able to carry it out to his satisfaction. If a person wanted to, he couldn't live to God's satisfaction because it would be for the wrong reason. That's right, it would be for the wrong reason. Without the, wrong, the, the, without the right motive, living for God can't happen because God is the source of all good. And the, it is the right reason that changes everything. If we have the wrong reason for living for God, we're living for ourselves, we're not living for God. And you see, God came first, and God is everything. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere present. He's all-knowledgeable. God is the source of life. But we don't want to see him that way. We get all upset when we hear something like that because we want to be that way, just like the devil does. But that's the flesh, which is condemned by Jesus. Number one, we're hostile to a God. Number two, God is not a person to take lightly. Israel was comprised of 12 tribes. You can find this in Numbers 1, 2, 3. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book of the Bible. An additional tribe was established for the safety of the other 12 tribes from God. You get that? He calls out a people, a person, Abraham. He calls out a people from Abraham. And when these people are numbering in the hundreds of thousands and millions, then he establishes tribes broken down into family units under the heads of those tribes and going back to the first men who were born to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And from these men, from these tribes, he pulls out the Levitical tribe and in Numbers 1, 53 and 54, we read this, but the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle. He had the tabernacle put in a certain place that God wanted, and then you have 12 tribes, 3, 6, 9, 12, 3, on each side of the tabernacle. You can picture that just spreading out over this vast land, and right in the middle is the tabernacle where the presence of God can show up when he designs the Levitical tribe is set up around the tabernacle in order to protect the people from the tabernacle. Not the tabernacle from the people. That's not going to happen when God's present. So the Levites, in Numbers 1, 53 and 54, says, But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony set there so that there will be no divine wrath against the congregation of the sins of Israel of the sons of Israel, so the Levites shall be responsible for service to the tabernacle of the testimony. You don't approach God unless he wants you to approach. You see, God has this ability to kind of remove himself in some way. He's, you know, he's everywhere present, but is, is he there present in all his full glory? No. Now, don't ask me to explain that, if you could, because I can't. But I know the scriptures well, and anyone who knows the scriptures well knows that this is true. This is the way it, it's read. God would fill the temple with his glory, and if you dare go into that temple at that point, you cease to exist. One person just put his hands up on the, 
on the tabernacle. And God struck him dead for it. Why? Because God is holy. We don't get that, see? We don't get that. Only a person who starts to get how man is condemned before God, the sinful condition of the human soul, which we could study through the book of Romans. Go back to the beginning where I'm looking at. It's not, it's not sufficient, but as best as, as I could, looking at what it means to be condemned before God. And we're even looking at it right here. So number four, there's these tribes, and it kind of shows how God wants to protect people from his holy anger towards sin. Number five, to be in sin is to be dead to God and unable to communicate with him. Colossians 2.13 says this, And when you were dead in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, or the unseparation, not being separated from the flesh, which we're talking about is the sin part of us, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings. We were dead. When you were dead in your wrongdoings, and you weren't separated from your flesh, he made you alive, those people who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to, to submit themselves to his lordship and to trust him for salvation. He makes them, us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us which are hostile toward us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, in that statement, there's this removal of sins so that communication can be restored between a man who walks in the Spirit and the Holy Spirit. It's the removal of the flesh, the removal of the sin in justification and in sanctification so that a man can walk with God. Oh, God spoke to you, you know, and of course the guy's crazy. And of course, men who think... Other people hear from God when they don't think them to be crazy. But you see, there are people who called out of this world, and those people do hear from God. They hear through the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit who abides within, who gives meaning to that Word. If that's not you, I certainly hope you will carefully consider these things. And at the end of this lesson, or even right now, you'll bow your head and you'll start speaking to God. And if you're real, if you're genuine, if God has called you to himself, he will speak back. Not in an audible voice, but through the word. He'll confirm the word to be true on your heart. And you will come to know it. Number six, the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh, scripture says in Romans, cannot please God, cannot Please God. That's just a straightforward sentence as you're going to get. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The first, what, why? Well, the first great commandment says this in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, chapter 6 and verses 4 and 5 says, Hear, O Israel, listen, hear, Israel, the Lord, Jehovah, Jehovah, our Elohim, our strong, faithful one, our God, Jehovah is one. One, one in three persons, one, and you shall love Jehovah, your Elohim, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
Now, if you're not loving God, the I am that I am, who we call God, with all your heart, every bit of it, all your attitude, all your motives, the intentions of your heart, your actions, the words you speak, every one of them, all of it, with all your soul and with all your strength, you're condemned. And every person in the, in the entire human race is condemned because all have sinned. And the reason we sin is because the flesh is hostile toward God. Not only do we not love God with all our being, not only do we want to speak to him or even admit that you can speak or hear from God, but we hate God. We're hostile toward God. These are biblical facts. Now, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. That's right. And the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. When a young man, or when I was young, in the faith, the devil perpetrated an incredible lie among Christian people in that day. And the lie got a lot of traction. And it was this. Some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Get that? You hear that? Some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Now that was like between 40 and 50 years ago that that statement was made. And that started people thinking and going down a line of thought that took heavenly mindedness, heavenly things, heavenly thoughts, heavenly teachings, the kingdom of God and what God set forth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, and the apostles who came after him, filled with the spirit of God, filled the scripture and started to take that down a road where they weren't going to really be quote-unquote spiritually minded or heavenly minded. We need to be practical. Let me tell you something. There is no practical, holy living apart from being heavenly minded. The heavenly minded person is the person who doesn't just get some basic Christian facts and then runs off and tries to do what? What are you going to do? You're going to be good? You're going to be holy? You're going to be obedient? You're going to love God? And how are you going to do this? You're going to do this in the flesh? And I can tell you right now, you're not going to do it really well in the flesh if you do it at all. Yes, even if you're born again. Why? Well, the Bible talks about the world, its philosophy, its mindset, that, that encompasses the culture around us, all the people, people you work for, the people you have work for you, the, uh, the governments, the, the way the courts are designed, the structures uh, of your own culture where you live, and the mindset, the standards of living, the morality, all of this in the world to which we, we, we rub shoulders with from time to time, all of that's bouncing off of us and we're going we're gonna to try to do what? We're going to live a godly life 
with all the world that's around us that pushes so hard on us to make us in its own image the way it wants to go. You're in an ocean, and that ocean is like moving. You're in a, a, a river that's like just going over Niagara Falls, and you're going to push against. There's a line, you know, when you're in the Canada, and you're driving along the road, and it says, for the boats that are in that river, beyond, do not go beyond this point. You go beyond that point, there's no coming back. There's no engine that's going to take you away from that fall. You're going down. That's the flesh, and that's the world. And the Bible talks about the world. It talks about the flesh. Now, you've got the whole flesh you have to deal with in yourself. It's not just outside and everything external. It's everything that's going on inside, in your mind, in your affections, in your emotions, in your heart. The heart that you have for the people you love, the people that are around you, the ways of life, everything, that all of that is against you. And then you have the, the demonic world, the God of this world that blinds the mind of those who do not believe, lest the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. What is it? What, who, how do you handle that? Now, if you think you're going to do that by understanding what's out there, what God has said in the New Testament, and what demands are put upon us, and like we're supposed to pray. Let's just take that for an example. And you're going to go out and you're going to do it, and by that obedience, you, you're going to whoop the devil, and you're going to whoop the, the world, and you're going to whoop the flesh. Well, good luck, because you're going to need a whole lot more than luck, but good luck, because that's all you got. You got nothing. Without understanding, see, the, the Bible is deep. It's not just shallow. It's not meant to be shallow. The depth of the book that we call the Bible, the doctrines of the, of the Christian faith, they're there to send roots down. We're like a tree. And the roots go deep into the ground, and those re- roots hold us fast in the truth that God gives us as an anchor of the soul. If you sit in a very shallow, your roots are very sh- You're going over with a little breeze. You're going down. You can't get up. The water is just rushing over. The water of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, if you don't stop and think about the things that I'm setting forth here, and you might be like just frazzled in your head. I mean, I'm throwing Greek words at you. I'm throwing, you know... So I don't care how many times you have to go over this and think about it and what, who you have to get a hold of to understand how you can because we have resources right now that are available that you can look at Greek terms, you can, you can listen to a podcast like this, you can get, start to grasp some of these doctrines. And when you do, these aren't meant for seminary students. No, this is meant for the Christian the Christian who needs to have roots going deep down so that he can stand against winds. He needs to, to have an engine that can actually pull away from the waterfall that's going to take you down. Because, you see, these things are created by God. These doctrines are taught by God. And when God gets into a person's heart and soul, through this means that's been supplied by godly men who are inspired by the Holy Spirit, well, then, greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. 
And when it comes to praying and demons come against you, it'll do everything to make you so your mind can't think, it can't even function. You're thinking about other things and you're wondering what's going on and you can't spend five minutes in prayer. Why is all this? Because you're not taking the time to understand these deep things of God that anchor the soul, that uh, multiply the size of your heart so that you have a heart for God that really begins to love God. So, so some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Yeah, right. People, there's no such thing as a, a person who is practically good without being heavenly minded. People can be spiritual hypocrites, of course. But a genuine Christian can never be too heavenly minded. To contemplate the great doctrine truths of the New Testament, such a human condition such a, a person needs to understand condemnation as set forth by God, justification by grace alone, justification by faith alone, identification in Christ, sanctification in the Holy Spirit, and how, how valuable these teachings are. And that's just a few. There are more. They are essential to maturity, and security against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Apart from them, listen, apart from these teachings, we're all just babies on a world, a war field. A war field that has beings in it that are so cunning, and believe it or not, so much more evil than human beings, that if you saw them, well... You know, you, you, would, you would do things that would be disgusting. They're, this, if they're fearful beings that can only be handled by Jesus Christ and by people who find themselves lost in Christ by being identified through faith in the teachings of the New Testament. We're not, these teachings are not meant to... And, and with the way I'm presenting this, I, I hope and I pray... This is not to puff up a person's mind that you know something now that other people don't know. It got nothing to do with that. This is about learning a truth that can that will save your soul, that will protect you in this life, and, and you will enter another life where you will need no protection. It will bring you into heaven with eternal life. It will not bring you before a throne to be, be condemned by a holy judge. And that holy judge is ready to condemn. He proved it all through the Old Testament, and he proved it on our behalf in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, upon whom he laid all that wrath and took it all away. And he can fill our hearts with joy and peace and love right now and right here. And the simple truths will do that in a simple way. And it's good for a while. But the longer you live, the more you'll be expected to mature and grow up. And if you don't, you're just a baby on a battlefield. Just a baby on a battlefield. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share your word. I thank you for the truths of your word. They're not simple. They're deep, but they can be understood by children the children of God. 
They can be understood by a person who's been born again. Doesn't have to be highly intelligent. Doesn't even have to be highly learned. And he has to have faith. She has to have faith. The faith of a child. The faith that says, God's word is true. Daddy loves me. And he sent his son to die for me. And he wants me to live with him eternally. Now it's set before me to call him Lord. Say, Lord, what, you're, what you want, I'll do. Lord, you want me to share my faith with other people? Let's do it. Lord, give me the boldness that I need in the Holy Spirit. Lord, you want me to put my voice out there and share the gospel with Jesus Christ? A world that, quite frankly, is hateful towards Jesus Christ. But there are those people ordained to eternal life, and you will save them. And you can use this broadcast, you can use the gospel by any person to save those who will come and who those who you want to grow in maturity and love, devotion, prayerfulness, fellowship with other Christians. Not in an institutionalized church that just replicates what men do. But a church that in its heart and soul is a family. It's the family of God. It might be separated like the nation of Israel into tribes and into individual families. But in those families, people have been united in the blood of Christ. It's not genetically a family. It's a family by the blood and life that was shed on Calvary's cross whereby Jesus took our sins upon himself, suffering and dying in an inconceivable way, while the Father was pouring out his anger on him, took it away, carried it away, and then on the third day rose from the dead in newness of life, whereby when we are united with him by grace, through faith, we become his and he becomes ours, we become one in mind and heart and soul and strength. And we can begin to love him as we've always meant to do. Lord, I pray. The hearers on the other end of this broadcast, Lord, you would allow them to take these truths, take them into their heart and their mind, strengthen the believers, make those who are outside the faith come into the faith, be born again, and be one with you. I ask these things not only for their sakes and my own, but for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.